Our final two shows of the year will take place on Tuesday, the 12th of December in San Diego, and Wednesday, the 20th of December in Denver. Come and hear stories on the theme of chance. Also, be sure to keep an eye on our Facebook page and website for an announcement about 2018 themes. Next storyteller. All right, next storyteller. Next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Welcome to the Narrator's Podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrator's, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. Today's story comes from sociology professor, actor, and writer Jimmy Valiente Neighbors. She told her story live at the Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego on the 14th of November. The theme of the evening was Under Your Skin. Here we go. Um, So growing up in the Philippines, I was scolded and spanked about a lot of things. I was loud, I talked too much, I was rowdy and acted too much like a boy. I was absent-minded and I lost a lot of things like earrings and things like that. I was also a klutz and I had bad posture. Um, But nothing brought as much criticism from my mother, grandmother, aunts and uncles than when I would come back into the house darker from playing for too long in the sun. I moved to the U.S. as a 10-year-old in the 90s right in between the news about um, Rodney King and O.J. Simpson. I didn't know it then, but I was growing up in a Filipino and American culture that valued lightness and whiteness. I was in, it was in college when it started clicking for me. Um, for example, while in an undergraduate literature class in my first year, I had the epiphany as a young writer, even in the Philippines, that I had always imagined my characters having blonde or red hair and blue or green eyes. My protagonists always had freckles, and I wanted freckles because... Archie from Archie Comics had freckles. And I read Archie Comics in the Philippines to learn informal informal English before moving to the US. During my last year of college, I did a research paper on people's experiences of US colonization in the Philippines. And one woman interviewee in her 60s shared a story that has stuck with me since hearing it from almost 15 years ago. She attended a public school in the Philippines where speaking English in classes was mandatory. One day in the playground, she saw a kid sitting in the sun with a sign that said, I did not speak English. I was shocked when I heard it, but somehow I understood. Um, What struck me most, however, was that it described two forms of punishment, being embarrassed in public and getting darker, stigmatizing not only the Filipino language, but dark skin. So I desperately needed role models who valued their dark brown skin. They weren't in my family or at the churches I attended, here or in the Philippines. My cousins and I used to pray to that popular illustration of a white Jesus with a burning heart. People know that one Um, on my wall. So instead, I found several role models among my college friends, one of whom has a great story that I'm going to tell because she's not here. Um, So I'll say it. Um, My friend, I'll call her Marie had a coupon for free nude underwear at a store she often goes to, I think probably Victoria's Secret. She picked out a pair of underwear of a dark brown color to which the cashier said was not considered nude. Marie responded with her blunt tone, this is how I look nude, do you want to (laughs) see? And caught off guard, the cashier um, talked with the manager, and they finally conceded to giving my friend the underwear of her choice, not the nude shade that only applied to people with lighter skin. 
So Marie challenged that dominant narrative about skin color that lighter-skinned women took for granted, and it was awesome. I think of her in her story, and I tell all the time, it makes me want to pump my fist. I was like, yeah. Um, it was also in college where I learned the language to name other things that got under my skin, such as internalized racism and xenocentrism, terms that pretty much describe the things I grew up seeing, the super light-skinned people on every billboard in the Philippines, um, the racial stereotypes on films and shows in the U.S., the chunks of my mother's whitening soaps in the bathroom, and my grandmother's insult that my uncle's wife's soul is as dark as her skin. They were fighting. And then I got married to a white man. Um, months before I started dating my husband of almost 10 years, I told a friend that I could never seriously date or marry a white man. There would be too much of a cultural gap, I said. But when I started getting to know Robert, it became quite clear that we were an excellent match in terms of values and chemistry. Um, he is white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. Or WASP, an, an acronym I learned in college. So one time I was hanging out with his mom, um, touring her garden, and wasps swarmed us. And I joked with her, no sweat, I'm around a wasp all the time. <laughs> she laughed really hard, and it was, it was good, it was good. <laughs> on a serious note, um, Robert and I knew early on that we needed to discuss the politics of interracial dating. My beloved mentors like, urged me to think carefully about you know, being seen or treated as a trophy wife for a white man. Robert and I also didn't want people to assume that I might be a mail-order bride and how we might be seen that way by those who don't know us. Um, a month into our relationship, I asked him to respond to this prompt. Where do you stand on race and white privilege? He responded with a long email, which roughly translates to an essay of six pages, double-spaced, Times New Roman, font size 12. <laughs> which is what I asked my students to turn in their paper. Like, that's the format I asked my students to do. What he shared solidified for me that our relationship would work. We were not going at it blindly, and we're going to be prepared to meet the challenges in a society where there is still aversion to interracial marriages. At the same time, there are preferences for half-white children. I have a dear friend, I'll call Lynn, who has a half-white, half-Filipino daughter who gets so many compliments about how beautiful she is, specifically because of her light skin. In fact, her relatives call her Purao, which is the word for white in their native language. Uh, Lynn also has two half-black, half-Filipino boys, one of whom at five years old this past summer said he did not want to be black anymore and asked why did God not make him white instead? These stories are um, pretty common. I have a mixed heritage female student who on more than one occasion as a child would rub white chalk all over her arms and legs and claimed that she too was white. Another mixed heritage female student shared how at about nine years old, she was found by her mom in the bathtub scrubbing her brown skin so hard because she was rubbing the dirt off. Um, she attended a private school filled with, she described, white, blonde, blue-eyed students who she said ignored her and left her out of things. The same student um, updated me just two weeks ago, and she learned from her mom who works at that school that another mom found her eight-year-old child doing the same exact thing. It's the same exact story 12 years later. 
So their stories only confirm for me and Robert that we would like to approach having kids and parenthood as intentionally as we approached our dating and marriage. In addition to the usual things my relatives say that already get under my skin. When are you having a baby? You're wasting time. You're getting too old. Um, like you're getting past the calendar. Like I'm way past the calendar. Yes. Um, they also often tell us that we would have beautiful kids because Robert is white. Um, so in my resistance to their standards of beauty, I still consider not bearing at all. <laughs> like this thing here. The, the possibility that our children would get preferential treatment over their full Filipino cousins um, just make me cringe. Um, I would not want our children to hear that they are more beautiful because they are half white, or worse, that they would grow up believing it. And so I imagine that when Robert and I do have kids, I would, one, not scold them for being too loud or talking too much. I would say, go ahead and be enthusiastic and animated and loud. You know, it's nice to be passionate about something. Um, if I had a rowdy girl, I would not compare her to a boy. Instead, I would say, let me, your mother, show you how to climb that tree. Um, also, if they lose or drop things, I'll figure it out. <laughs> and on a family trip or maybe just a regular weekend in San Diego, I would say, go put on sunscreen with your dad first and then go have fun in the sun. And we would not pray to a white Jesus at church or over lunch or dinner. I would say with the appropriate amount of head shaking and nodding, no, honey, Jesus was not white. <laughs> he was brown, and he liked to eat his fish and vegetables. <laughs> Thank you. The Narrators is produced by Robert Rutherford, Mary Robertson, Aaron Rollman, and me, Ron Doyle. Our assistant producer is Sydney Crane. Our theme music is by Whalehawk. And our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. A very special thanks to our amazing sponsors, Illegal Pete's, Sexy Pizza, From the Hip Photo, and Renegade Brewing Company. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And join us at one of our live monthly shows, which take place every second Tuesday of the month at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego, California, and every third Wednesday of the month at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. Both shows start at 8 p.m. and are always free to attend. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter, and for past episodes, photos from our live shows, and a list of our upcoming events and themes, please visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening.